Hello, I'm Nick Baker, and this is the UK Wildlife Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast with me, Victoria Hillman. And me, Neil Phillips. So, tonight... For this episode, we're actually talking all about dragonflies and damselflies, which are favourite subjects of both of ours. So get comfy and get a cup of tea and some biscuits. But first of all, we're going to start off with a little bit of news. In the last couple of weeks or so, we have actually decided to set up an Instagram account as well for the podcast. You can find us at UK Wildlife Podcast. And we're going to share more kind of photos and videos of things we've been talking about and things we've been finding and photographing ourselves. So, you know, come find us on Instagram and give us a follow. Got any questions, you can kind of send them through, tag us through in photos, anything you want. So we're we're, net, we're now on Instagram as well. Yeah, we'd, we've done one live video and we just talked about our wildlife gardens and walked around yep. a little bit. Yeah. So, if, yeah, if you've got any requests for that sort of thing, just let us know, really. Uh, uh, we thought about maybe trying to do a bit of a live video podcast at some point as well. Yeah, I have to edit it. I like that. <laughs> um, in other news, we have passed the milestone of 10,000 downloads. Ooh. Yay. We can thank Nick for that a little bit as well. Yeah, big <laughs> thanks to everyone that shared the podcast, everyone that's listened, and of course to all our guests. So that's, yeah. I'll be, see if I remember everyone, Adrian, Steve, Nick, and Stephen. Yeah. So. Oh, that's Steve. very confusing. I should have said Steve Allen and uh, Stephen Moss to save confusion there, but then when, yeah, so thanks a lot, guys. Big, massive thanks to you to absolutely everyone that's supported us in the last, what, six months? Seven months that we've been doing this now? You six know, and a half months we, it took we us to reach 10,000, I worked out, I think, so that's um, yeah. So, yeah, and just everyone that's kind of shared and, and interacted with us well, and that's what we want. We want everyone to kind of interact with us and tell us what you've been seeing and stuff as well. So keep it going let's yeah. you know celebrate our uk wildlife so moving on what have we all been seeing so i'm gonna hand over to you neil first because my list is incredibly short so yeah you can go with yours first i found a walk near to me where i've seen and heard nightingales and cuckoos and which is quite nice and a few nice invertebrates i have started now they've eased the lockdown slightly i'm i'm wandering a bit further afield but i'm not I'm trying to stick to sort of private nature reserves and stuff. I've been to a, a nice site, um, do a little bit of pond dipping. But last weekend I went up to North Essex. Um, I actually visited my work. Obviously didn't do any work. I just had a visit to the site. But before then I went to Fox Earth Meadows, which is a, a dragonfly reserve. Saw some nice dragonflies and possible hobby. It's a four spot chasers, a few bits and pieces. Nothing to write home about. Lots of lovely banders. There was a lovely reserve. I'll definitely go back there at some point. Driving to work, I nearly ran over what I think was a grass snake, uh, which was <laughs> I slammed on the brakes, but it gone under my car. But I saw no trace of it afterwards, thankfully. So it must have whizzed through between my wheels and disappeared. It's only a little one, about two foot long at most. Yeah, when I got to where I work, I went for a wander down to the river and I found some nice banders and results again. Loads of kayakers and canoeists. I won't comment on their social distancing or lack thereof. But I saw a bright orange dragonfly and there was a scarce chaser, which is what I'd gone to Fox Club to see. So just gone straight to work, I guess. And then I found a patch of about four or five of them a bit further down. So that was really nice. I've got some photos of those. And then going back to the pond dipping pond there, I got broad bodied and four spot chasers. I had three chasers within, what, 10 minutes of each other, which was quite nice. 
a few hairy dragonflies and lots of reserve damselflies too. But I can't believe I'm going to say this. Of all those lovely dragonflies, the highlight of the day was the spotted flycatcher, which is actually nesting above the kitchen window somewhere. We think we're obviously trying to stay away from there. I'm obviously trying to social distance from my boss as well, so I didn't go too close. But he was coming out to the fence line, and I got some lovely pictures of him. So. Yeah, that was really nice. Um, well chuffed with that. Garden-wise, I've had wall card bee buzzing around, and my froglets have started to appear. And I did have a very quick run out to a local nature reserve today and got some common spotted orchids, pyramid orchids, and perhaps more impressive, uh, common tway blade, and more impressively, man orchids. But they weren't very tall. I think it's been a bit dry. But I've got some nice botanical pictures for a change, which is always good. Always like to get a few orchids in every year. It always, always warms the soul a little bit. But that leads quite nicely onto you, Vic, I believe. Um, it does because I, although I'm, I'm not really venturing out that much still at the moment. Um, I go out on my runs, which I can honestly say, um, I was doing really well. My 8k time was coming down, and then it started going back up again because I was getting distracted. Uh, so I went out <laughs> this morning, and I got distracted by the fledgling birds that are coming out of so where I run, the few of the houses there, that beautifully, you know, beautiful gardens and that. And they've put nest boxes up on the houses. So you've got the fledgling birds coming out and flying around. You've got all the butterflies and that. And now I'm just getting distracted now on my run. So <laughs> my 8K time is now going up instead of coming down because I'm just too distracted. Other than that, I went out to try and get some more plants for my garden and got distracted by the red kite flying over over nice. the lake at the garden centre. Um, so that was kind of warm away. way. Yeah, not... Oh, I do have one very exciting sighting and that was a small blue butterfly oh yes um and this was actually last week i kind of i was in the garden and i kind of knew what it was when it came in because it's i mean they they're quite often mistaken for holly blue butterflies but this is definitely the small bloom i've had it all all verified and it actually spent quite a long time pretty much all afternoon in my garden um and they don't tend to stray too far from their colonies um, but this is actually the first ever record of a small blue butterfly in Froome, oh, awesome. um, which is super exciting. It's actually the second year that I've had it, but I couldn't 100% confirm last year. But it's it's definite this year. And they're also a very rare butterfly to see in a garden. Yeah. Um, so super, super chuffed about that. And then the other exciting news is that in a previous episode, um, I think as you mentioned it in the episode with, with Nick Baker, that... Uh, I have a bee orchid growing in my garden as well. And this has just popped up. It's completely wild um, uh, where I've, I've let my front, front garden go wild. And it started to flower at the weekend. So the first flower opened, I think it was Saturday. And then the other the second flower opened overnight on Sunday. And it's it's actually protected from the heat of the day because it only gets the sun until about 11 o'clock. So it, it's protected from the heat, um, heat of the day. And it's looking really lovely. So I've been out photographing that and I'm trying, I'm going to set myself a mini project of trying to photograph it maybe every day, but there's not, there wasn't much difference between today and yesterday, but certainly every time each flower opens, I'm going to kind of photograph it as I go along. So it's like a little mini project, but it's super exciting and it shows what can happen if you just let things go a bit wild. Do you know one thing you you should have a try at, you know, do something different. Now, bear in mind that I've been when I took orchid photos today, I basically channeled my inner Victoria Hillman. I think you should get um, your camera set up on some sort of flat supporting surface 
and try and do a stack of your bee orchid. Oh, well, that's if the wind stops. <laughs> uh, yeah, that that is the problem. It's really quite windy here, um, and yeah. it's hard enough to get an in-focus picture doing one shot right now. Um, yeah. I did think about it, mm. but also it's a bit of a weird angle. I can't... Actually, don't do that. I don't want you getting a better picture at stack of orchid. <laughs> I got I, a really nice one last year. I can't quite get a tripod set up, um, and yeah, it, it's a bit of an awkward position, but if i can i'm having to do everything through live view at the moment because i can't look yeah. through the viewfinder so i don't know if it if it if the wind drops um, i know the lens quite really, you could get a bean bag and put, get like a depending on how high the orchid is get a sort of either like a plastic lid or like a plastic tupperware box or something to rest it on and you can slide it that way that might work it's yeah, the, they're, the they're so 3D, they, they lend themselves to stacking. The they do, orchid. and the problem is where it's growing, I've actually fenced off my part of the garden. Oh, yes. And I'm having to try and shoot through the fence and yeah. everything else that's growing around it, so it might not actually work for the for the bee orchid where it is this year. Yeah. So Big up, move it. <laughs> no. <laughs> but there we go. That That's kind of, that's two really exciting things for me. And, and that's, that's here in my own garden, so. It's been an interesting month i guess we should move on to the uk wildlife news now i'm going to apologize in advance uh please bear in mind i'm from essex i had a fantastic email we've, we've had a few contacts sorry everybody else i didn't get around to putting them all together but we'll try and squeeze me next week Ger- i think it's gerald i think that's pronounced correctly sent me an email to point out that only the last 10 episodes are available on apple and it's a settings thing in wordpress so you can only get up to episode six now can't get anything before then but i've now changed it so you should from now on be able to get every episode at least episode six with Apple or update it to get the previous five. But uh, I think it's fair to say there were the five, five weakest episodes we've done because we we're still learning mm. how to do stuff back then. Um, well, we're still learning now, but um, we've got had a bit of an idea since episode six, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, so thanks so much for that. A very helpful heads up. So yeah, if you've spot anything like that, guys, please do not hesitate to tell us because we're still, still finding our feet to some degree with a lot of this technology. Okay, yeah. shall we move on to the news stories? Now, unfortunately, we've had some great sightings and I think generally wildlife has been doing really well, but I think, unfortunately, most of our news stories are not so great. Take something when first news story, May is the sunniest month ever, is bad news in some ways. <laughs> it's like the universe is mocking us. It's kind of, like, oh, everyone's stuck inside. Let's have the sunny. It's the sunniest month ever on record. Not the sunniest May ever, the sunniest month ever recorded in the uk i mean that's just and may's my favorite month that's just rubbing salt in the wood that's not rubbing salt in the wood that's rubbing vinegar salt acid bleach and everything in the wound and a bit of lemon juice on top a bit of lemon (laughs) juice as well yeah because that's worse than bleach (laughs) (laughs) oh god i mean it has been a good month but actually that said it's also Mm. been certainly in the south of the country it's been really hot and what we've seen is a lot of a lot of things have happened earlier this yeah. year a lot yeah. earlier yeah the scarce um, emeralds which uh damselflies which we'll come to later um are usually out june mid-june they're usually on the wing i had records sent to me from mid-may which is mad the earliest i've ever seen them was 30th of may which was very early it's like what's going on but there's lots yeah. of that going yeah i mean the four spot chaser uh roosts around me they were they were early this year at least a week if not two weeks earlier um obviously no one's been out on the reserves where they where they occur so we don't know when exactly it happened but i mean i can go back five six years with my dates from the roost and it's it's definitely happened at least a week if not more earlier this year as well 
Um, I did actually have one quick visit down to the roost the other weekend and we found one small group and that was it actually so we, we don't really quite know what's happened there and because people haven't been on, on the reserve we actually don't know I mean I don't want to say that it didn't happen at all but it probably did just happen a lot earlier because there's still an awful lot of dragonflies around they've just dispersed a lot quicker so which is interesting but we'll get more onto dragonflies and damselflies should we hit these news stories Neil should we just get them out of the way yeah they're all a bit depressing let's start with the Don't... invasion of the idiots because <laughs> I know there's children listening to this podcast I, w- I would use much harsher language to describe them if you go on social media you can see lots of lovely pictures uh, someone around Lee area there's a wetlands that a friend of mine is a volunteer at and there's pictures of people walking along the islands and in scrapes they just decide to walk out onto nature past all the signs climbing the fences there's same down in Kent. I've seen pictures of people just walking around. This is the bits of the nature reserve that even the dog walkers don't tend to go on, you know. And it's just like it's so all the nesting birds flushed off the nest, or they've abandoned them probably. That's if predators don't come down and swoop down and finish them off. In New Forest, people starting fires. I think fires oh. in general. I mean, Thursley Common, um, Wareham. There's a few up north as well. There's been an awful lot of fires and the majority of these have been started by disposable barbecues. Yeah, not of them haven't been confirmed, but they found disposable barbecues at the site. So some of them. So it's just basically, I'm I'm an environmental educationist. I want to get people out. I want people to get in contact with nature. But I've now come around to the score thought that someone said the other day on Twitter, they can't wait till they open the pub so these idiots have somewhere else to go. Because there's bags of litter. We've had um, Daisy Cogney, friend of the show, uh, and has put up a picture of it was yesterday on Twitter. A dog bin that's overflowing and probably enough to fill it two or three times piled up next to it. Take it home! You lazy yeah. word I can't say. Oh, it just infuriates but I, think, me. I, I think it's with all, all litter and everything, you know, oh, yeah. you've carried it down there. Take it home with you. I mean... On one level, I, you know, I'm with Neil. I want I want people to go out and I want them to enjoy the outdoors. I want them to enjoy nature, get out there, enjoy it, see what we have in this country. But please, if you're going to be irresponsible and you're going to light barbecues, you're going to leave your litter. You're going to basically use these these amazing areas as a toilet and not clean up. Or in some cases, it's actually happened down south. People using people's back gardens as toilets. Uh, oh. you know and in sand dunes and that do you know what if that's the way you're going to behave please just don't go there a lot, quite a lot of these sites that have had fires on they're triple si's they're vitally important habitats for a variety of species you know if you're going out to a reserve i know a lot more of our reserves are now opening our, our actual designated nature reserves be that through like rspb or like wildlife trust i know more of them are opening but some areas are still being kept closed and that is to protect wildlife so if you see an area that says it is currently closed please don't go there there's a really good reason it's closed you know we 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 can all do our bit to to help and and unfortunately i think we're kind of probably preaching to the converted on the podcast i think you know pretty much everyone that listens is going to be a lovely responsible person anyway and feel the same way we do but yeah i don't quite know how you get the message out there and there was actually, I think this is probably a really good point, really good time to mention it. There was, you know, as always, we ask questions from our listeners. And there's one from Josh McCallum-Stewart said, you know, how, how can we help prevent things like the fire at Thursley Common or any of the fires? You know, how, how can we, is there anything we can do to kind of stop those happening? 
in the future. Yeah, well, uh, one suggestion people make, oh, this was after the w- Warden fire, wasn't it? Someone started a petition to mm. ban disposable barbecues because they were just kind of pointless things, really. Yeah, and we used to have problems with them in the country park. I used to work out as well. They leave a burn mark that's sort of two foot across on the grass. But what people don't realise is that there's also damage going down at least a foot, so nothing will grow there for a year or so. And it's just... Yeah, the cone of, uh, is it cone of damage, I think they call it, something like that from a fire. Mm-hmm. Even if you have it off the ground, it still damages the ground. There is a petition out there, and we will share the link, certainly on Twitter and Facebook, yeah. um, about banning these disposable barbecues. And actually something that I saw that I thought was really good is that I've got a feeling it might have been in the Lake District that, you know, the, the garages and that up there, they've basically, they've taken them off. So they, they are no longer selling disposable barbecues because we've had very little rain in the last I mean certainly when when Neil and I are in the last what two two and a half months we've had barely anything at all and that's the same for a lot of the country it is bone dry and there are massive fire risks out there so I think it's great that you know some of these places are actually taking the initiative to stop selling them there's so many stories now um I think it was Hampshire and Isle of Wight Wildlife Trust. They actually released a story today. Nature gets a kicking as local wildlife havens become hotbeds for antisocial behaviour. And they've got stories, they've got from racist graffiti, people fighting with broken bottles, piles of throwaway barbecues and naked swimmers. Uh, Hampshire's nature reserves have seen it all this weekend. This is before the lockdown was was properly, you know, relaxed even more. Uh, yeah, they talk about 20 bags of ri- of rubbish from one nature reserve. Volunteers found themselves in the middle of violent arguments. People kayaking down rivers where there's no kayaking allowed. Swimming in toxic lakes. Yeah, people have just been trashing the places. I mean, I've seen gates kicked in and smashed down. I mean, the what a lot of people didn't realise with the Durdle Door thing was they actually closed the roads in the car park Durdle Door. People just drove through the roadblocks. And then, of course, everyone else followed them. There was a there was a quite an amusing video where someone decided to park his Mercedes in a farmer's field, and obviously a bit clueless because the farmer apparently was spreading um, muck on the field, and he was doing it when the bloke parked. And the farmer said, "Well, I'm not going round him." And he <laughs> put this way, he probably had an expensive car washing bill when he got back to the car once it had baked on. You know, I have to admit, I think like a lot of people, it was quite satisfying to see when people were that selfish. That sort of comes up, but yeah, they're blocking all the country lanes. Um, the, well, services can't get yeah. through. It's just oh, it's just... blocking. I mean, it, and it is everywhere. It's not just places yeah. like Durdle Door um, and the beaches. It's happening here on the Mendips. People, you know, parking dangerously, blocking roads. You know, these are also farming communities, and people still need to get around and do their jobs. So, you know, people leaving gates open. Um, yeah. You know, just yeah, it, it's hard. I said I think we're preaching to the converted. Um, <laughs> because yeah. you know all our listeners are all lovely lovely people and responsible so yeah but it's you know it's something that we felt that we really had to mention certainly yeah. at the moment so yeah we've had uh there's been a few posts as well about bag bad dog owners as well which is kind of linked to this because it's probably people walking a lot of it uh, a chap called uh cat frampton i've got the impression he's a farmer he's just seen three dogs running free on the like literally the last spot with cuckoos in Devon on, on Dartmoor. Huge signs up saying, you know, this is the last one, the last sites for them. Please keep dogs under control. Nope, don't care. And there was uh, someone else mentioned something as well. That's it. Oh, firstly, common. We mentioned the fire. Someone uh, Twitter 
and was actually at Fursley. She said she spoke to a guy who travelled to Fursley from Hertfordshire with his dog to go on the common because he wanted to have a look at the fire. What the <laughs> word I can't say on this podcast? What what is wrong with people? And as I said, I have a theory. Obviously, not all dog owners are idiots, but I have a theory that if you're a complete idiot. You buy a dog just to complete your ability to cause anarchy wherever you go. Oh, it's just what? Why? It almost makes you lose faith in humankind sometimes. Um, it's being severely tested at the moment. <laughs> Various mm. things going on, but there is lots of there's some good things going on out there. I mean, something I'll bring up. It's very topical at the moment with all what's going on in America. I won't get too deep into all of that. Uh, but uh, it's actually at the time of recording, it's second of June. It's actually Black birders week which is a movement to try and encourage diversity within birding and you know general natural history because it, it, if you look look at the population statistics and then compare it to the amount in natural history it is rather shockingly white dominated and we you know we need to get everyone involved so you know i'm quite happy to support it i shared the post on twitter the one comment was oh i'm quite pale should i put a brown paper bag on my head and i can take part and you just think oh for god's sake i just reported him and I should have locked him and resp- I should have responded to him because you need to challenge these things. But once I've reported him, I couldn't see the post anymore. But I've heard story. I don't want to get really deep into all this, but I've also ha- heard from a, how old was he? 15 years old. He turned up at a Twitch and a certain infamous Twitcher said, oh, I don't get many of your kind here. I mean, okay, it's not aggressive or I don't want to say not offensive, but it's not sort of in his face, but it's a totally unnecessary con- uh, comment that can make someone feel unwelcome. And you just think, you know, and this the person I'm talk I'm talking about is that definitely old enough to know better, put it that way, shall we say. But he his politics is well known, which are somewhat xenophobic, I think would be the uh, the polite way of putting it. I'd use the R word personally. Yeah. Oh, it just you know but that's a whole thing of society and that's not what this podcast is about. But we do need you know, if you I, I like to think I would challenge it if I saw it, but it, sometimes you can't. It's really um well, it's not that you can't, you don't, and then you regret it afterwards. But I've made a mental note that if I've ever come across that. If I if put it this way, if he'd said it in the hide um, when I worked in the country park, I'd have told him to leave. Because, yeah, especially with a, a younger lad as well who could be easily intimidated, I don't... Mm. It's just always unacceptable all the time, but it's really unacceptable yeah. then, I think. Yeah, it's, you know, we, we should be just including everyone, to be honest. You know, and, mm. yeah, everyone has a right to be out there um, yeah. at the end of the day. Well, we've got two more depressing stories going. We've got in North Kent, they've just granted permission for the biggest solar farm in the country. And it is smack bang next door to Ore Marshes Nature Reserve, which is a very important nature reserve, Kent Wildlife Trust. So they've just expanded it one way and they're putting a solar farm on the other side. And it's a load of grazing marsh. And everyone's going, oh, I'll be fine. It's great. You know, it's green. That grazing marsh is used by Brent geese in winter to graze. They won't be able to do it, but it's covered in solar panels. It's a huge area. It's in the middle of the swale, and it's literally the border of the conservation area. Basically, they're building it up to the border and filling in the gap. And you're just thinking, that should be nature reserve. It shouldn't be turned up the solar farm. It's just... Oh, and they're building houses on a brownfield site just up the coast as well, to, you know, which has got turtle doves and a few other scarce species. So scarce, I can't name what they are um, on a public broadcast. It's just, it's very depressing. Should I, should I do my quick rant? I think I'm going to have to get this out of the way. 
Um, <laughs> go, go on, Neil. Go on. Get, 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 get it, it off your chest, and then we're going to get on the dragonflies and damsel Lovely dragonflies. I'm going to do it as quick as I can. We've mentioned briefly some of the politics around raptor killings and stuff, and a little bit about some of the hunt lobby groups with their, well, shall we say, their how should I, the economic the truth to the level that Dominic Cummings might get embarrassed at times and a classic one this new organizations formed i can't even bother to name them and they Stephen moss who was on the show what a few episodes three or four episodes ago he did an interview on radio 4 and talked about how wonderful raptors are doing you know if you took his quote out of context which they did uh, you could imply that raptors are doing great across the country everywhere they're doing okay as a country as a whole raptors are doing okay sparrowhawks are declining red kites have been reintroduced so they're spread into new areas and he was specifically talking about in towns for most of this. And they twisted it into basically raptors are doing great. So what are the RSV be moaning about with persecution? It's like, what? And of course, all the usual suspects, um, Andrew Gurra from the Game Wildlife Conservation Trust, etc. Started retweeting it. And Stephen Moss instantly was onto them on Twitter going, um, can you change your headline instead of misquoting me? And they went, we just quoted you directly. I don't know what you're on about. And it's just like, oh, grow up. And it's just, oh, idiots. So poor Stephen Moss is made to look like a, uh, you know, a person that excuses the persecution of bird of prey, which he most certainly does not if you listen to our podcast with him. And yeah, so they've happily tried to make a conservationist look stupid, which is basically what their main aim is. Rather than tackle the problems of persecution within hunting, they're just trying to muddy the waters and they're spreading, shall we say, they're economic with the truth or selective with their facts. There we go. Hunting lobby up to their usual tricks. They've taken a break from slagging off the RSVB and Chris Packham, I guess. But let's move on from all the depressing news. Yeah. And um, we're going to move on to our main topic for this episode. Yeah. Which we both love because nice. they're amazing and awesome. To the extent that I'm the Essex recorder for Dragonflies, so so we we're gonna we're gonna try and condense this into one episode. We could probably talk for hours, to be honest, on them. We're gonna just run through some basics for you, and then obviously, if you've got any specific questions, you can always contact us afterwards. So I think Neil, you're gonna start us off with a bit of history. Dragonflies are a ancient group. They originated sort of 300 million years ago. Depends where you define what a dragonfly is. And by dragonfly, I'm talking about Odonata. So you've got dragonflies and damselflies as the two main groups but sometimes dragonflies is used to cover both those groups so dragonflies the, the bigger chunkier ones for, 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 for put it simply and the skinnier ones the damselflies and it gets a bit confusing the scientific term they use is odonata so they, entomologists will probably refer to them as odonata which is dragonflies and damselflies as one and actually when you when you read a lot yeah. of the guides they do refer to them all as dragonflies really there's a new naturalist that tried to, to use a new name for dragonfly i forget what it was now I think it was, was it Thunderflies or something like that, which is, you know, a bit too close to something else. You end up getting slapped by someone, you're not careful. We're going back, it's just Carboniferous period, roughly. So insects have invaded the land. They're the first land creatures. And we have mayflies and dragonflies taken to the air as the first flying creatures. Now, when I say dragonflies, there's a group that looks very similar to them. They're called the Proto-Odonata. And the dragonflies are either closely related or arose from this group. It depends how you define it and what you look at but this group i mentioned because they include what is now called the griffin flies which are the giant dragonflies you might have heard of and these were around the carboniferous and the next uh, geological period the permian so sort of 300 million years ish ago and they were as big as a crow so 90 centimeter wingspan the nymphs must have been sort of 30 centimeters 40 centimeters long 
but no one's ever found a fossil one. So we, we have we have the full body of smaller ones and just the wing of the bigger ones. Oh, that would have been amazing to see. Imagine pond if that'd be it wouldn't even fit in your net, the nymph. I mean, you wouldn't need a macro lens to photograph it either, would you? <laughs> and no, definitely not. You, <laughs> yeah, you probably need a wide angle to fit in. The Carboniferous was a time of high oxygen. So for when I was growing up, the reason they grew so big, along with three metre long millipede relatives and metre long scorpions and spider like organisms that had sort of 60 centimetre leg spans and giant mayflies and giant cockroaches and giant everything, because the oxygen level was so high. Because of the way insects breathe, they could grow bigger. But weirdly, in the Permium, the oxygen level dropped, but the, some of the dragonflies were quite big still. So Meganeura is the genus that grew quite big, or grew to these giant sizes. So maybe it's not just the oxygen. And as a friend of mine pointed out, who is a better paleontologist than me, I am technically a paleontologist, by the way, I don't know if I've ever mentioned that, paleobiologist, better way, uh, Dr. Mark Witten, who's an expert on pterosaurs, he pointed out that the oxygen level in the Jurassic got equally as high but the insects didn't get big again so it's probably an element of competition at least as well so because there was obviously pterosaurs flying around and by the end of jurassic some birds as well well dinosaurs some dinosaurs are flying around so lots to compete with there and while i'm on subject of pentology quite often you'll see a picture of a dinosaur or a pterosaur chasing a dragonfly well if you've ever seen a dragonfly fly in modern day you'll know that they are really hard to catch very maneuverable animals so that's probably fairly unrealistic there's very few creatures that can catch a dragonfly in full flight in the modern day world you're talking things like hobbies and maybe some of the swifts and other and harundines can catch the smaller ones but yeah they're quite hard to catch unless they're trying to warm up so yeah coming to the modern day dragonflies found across the world except antarctica we have the zygoterra which is the damselflies and the anseoterra which is the dragonflies and there is another group which i'm not going to get into because it's found the tropics and has three species in that's kind of halfway between the two but it doesn't have doesn't really have a common name they're kind of i hate to use the word primitive but kind of primitive dragonflies uh, and these groups were separated millions of years ago now dragonflies tend to be powerful flyers and damselflies tend to sort of they're still quite good flyers but not quite as powerful they tend to flutter i'm going to kind of talk about like the colors and the flight of them if you've seen dragonflies and damselflies you'll notice that both are, are pretty kind of bright and have metallic colors and these are actually created by structural colors and pigment colors and it's it's actually kind of like the makeup and the colors is something that really really interests me when it comes to invertebrates in particular now the overall color that we see is actually a combination of the structural colors and yellow red brown and black pigments and then you know quite often blue is a color that crops up a lot particularly with damselflies and those blue colours are created by the reflection of blue light of, off microstructures in the cuticle. And then any green colours that we see in them are actually created by a combination of the yellow pigment with a structural blue. So you know, when you see those colours, it's not straightforward. It's not we're seeing one colour. We're seeing, you know, kind of interactions between um, structural colours and pigment colours and, you know, reflections from microstructures so it it's a, it's a, really is absolutely amazing you know what we mm. see there yeah if you've seen them fly then you'll see that there's dragonflies really they're like nature's mini helicopters they really are absolutely incredible powerful flyers damselflies not so much so i know there was a question from alan who's a friend of the show and he actually asked why dragonflies and damselflies are such good flyers but demoiselles are quite awkward well Actually, dragonflies are incredibly good flyers, um, but uh, demoiselles actually come under damselflies as well. And 
it's not that they're awkward they're much more dainty flyers and they and a lot, lot of time they kind of like they, they flutter and they stay quite close to vegetation and that's where they hunt i mean they're both predators and they both eat invertebrate prey you know i've seen dragonflies eating damselflies so you know there's no, no love loss between them but what makes them real you know really good flies particularly and this is this is more now about the dragonflies and you know some dragonflies can actually fly up to about 36 kilometers an hour they can move up and down changing direction quickly and they can even hover uh, and this actually you know, these fast movements and this ability to to fly so well actually enables them to catch their prey in flight using their legs so what they have if you go out early in the morning or you find a dragonfly at rest and you you've got the ability to have a nice close look at, at the wings they actually have a wing mark on the leading edge and this actually helps to stabilize the wing and prevents vibrations during flight and they also have a rib-like costa along that leading edge and this helps with them when they, they're cutting through the air so this actually you know they have all these amazing structures in their wing that really make them these absolutely incredible flyers but yeah, it's not just the colors and the flying and, and everything they also have amazing eyes and we are going to talk about the differences between dragonflies and damselflies in a second neil's going to take you through that but they can actually detect color ultraviolet light movement and plane of polarization and they have almost a 360 degree vision so i mean it just makes them the ultimate predator really they're absolutely incredible so there we go there, there's a bit of nerdy fact about the kind yeah. of makeup of, of dragonflies damselflies there's a paper that came out a little while ago i forget which species it was on and to give you some reference a great white shark catches its prey 10 percent of the time tiger it's something like 20 or 30 percent of the time a sparrowhawk's about 10 percent of the time i think the previous holder was african hunting dog which used lots of strategy to catch their prey it was something like 60 percent of the time for them but when this dragonfly it was 90 percent of the time they caught their prey when they took mm. off they came back eating something 90 percent of the time you quite often see that with some species they'll take off and come back and you'll see them chewing so we've got the two groups we've got dragonflies and damselflies now i'll run through the differences between them damselflies uh, when they land tend to put their wings together behind their back with the exception of the emeralds or lestidae that tend to hold it about 45 degrees the eyes don't tend to touch in damselflies and they tend to be sort of skinnier and they sort of have a more fluttery closer to sort of like maybe a butterfly flight dainty um, not, dainty that's a good word yes and they tend to feed more by sort of plucking prey off of plants even take spiders sometimes they i've watched it a few times they fly down into an area of long grass and they'll pluck a midge off the grass and then they'll land and eat it Dragonflies are more powerful flyers, usually faster. Depending on the species, they either tear around catching prey or they sit on a perch and then take off and grab something and come back down to eat it. They hold their wings flat when they land. Their um, wings are actually slightly different as well, which is yeah, so, quite interesting. Yeah. That, and that, that really helps with the difference in the flight patterns that we see with them because mm. the dragonflies hind wings are actually broader at the base than the forewings, whereas damselflies' wings are, are similar. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting uh, the design, and they can fly with three wings. I saw I saw another one. I've seen a few of them over the years, and they can fly backwards. They can hover very mm. well. That's dragonflies and damselflies actually can do that. Dragonflies, the exception of one group, the eyes touch. They basically take up the whole head almost on a dragonfly, apart from the mouth. Both dragonflies and damselflies have tiny little antennae, which is how you can tell damselflies apart from the similar ant lions. Some of them look quite similar to damselflies. Now I'm going to quickly run through the 
different families and touch on a couple of species, but we'll be here all night if I go into the details of all of them. So we'll start with the damselflies, the zygoterra, as I mentioned earlier. You have the demoiselles are the big metallic ones. You tend to get them only on flame water, and they're a little bit larger than the other damselfly species. Metallic blue bodies on the males, uh, metallic green on the females, in the UK at least. One of the reasons they flutter so much is they, the males use their wings for display purposes as well. Sort of, you know, when they're sitting down, they're sometimes in flight. Uh, which is why they look so wonderful over the water. You have my favourite group of damselflies in the next family, the Lestidae, uh, the emerald damselflies. I should have said there's two species of demoiselle. There's four species of emerald damselfly, two of which are recent arrivals. And these are typically found in ponds that are either thickly vegetated or dry out at the end of summer. They're sort of specialists of that sort of habitat. We have the, oh, I never pronounce this, I'm going to get it from Latin, Canagridae, which are the blue ones you see most frequently the blue tailed which is probably the most common species because they live in any sort of water and the red damselflies so the large reds the ones that normally come out first uh, these are probably the most common group in garden ponds and fairly ubiquitous you know you get some more selective species within them but you tend to find them quite widespread and you have the platysiminidae which is the white leg damselflies which we only have one species of i think there might even be one species across the whole of europe and they like slow flowing rivers similar to some of the demoiselles, you quite often find them together. So moving on to Anseatera, or dragonflies, as they're better known. I'll start with the Gomphidae, which is the club-tailed dragonflies. We've got one species, lives in slow fly and water, and this is characterised because the eyes do not touch like of all the other dragonfly families. Uh, perhaps best known as dragonflies, we've got the Aeshnidae, which is your hawkers, your southern hawkers, your brown hawkers, your migrant hawkers, um, and the emperors, which is the big blue ones our biggest species the female emperor is our biggest species of dragonfly if you live in the west country or scotland or anywhere with sort of acid extremes around you're probably familiar with the golden ring dragonflies the cordigastridae i'm terrible at latin as i've said many times before and these are quite striking insects the female with our ovipositor is actually the longest dragonfly she's not the biggest but she's the longest they've been compared to giant wasps in the past we've also then got the cordialidae which is the emerald dragonflies, not to be confused with the emerald damselflies. And we have three species of these, which have a weird distribution. We're going to have to go into have another episode to go into the details of all of these, I think. Um, and these are metallic green dragonflies. These are quite stunning. Some of them have brownie sheen and bright coloured eyes. Great things. And some live on bogs, which is the northern emerald, but the others tend to live in habitats where you've got overhanging trees, so canals and lakes and stuff like that. And lastly, we've got the libellidae, which is all your chasers, your skimmers and your darters, which are the ones you're most likely to find around your garden pond. Probably along with the hawkers, actually, I guess. And these are the smaller ones that you find sitting on perches and stuff like that and darting out and grabbing prey for flying back. The darters, particularly the common and ruddy, are the really common ones at sort of the end of summer you see everywhere the red and yellow ones um, and that's a quick summary there there's approximately 40 species in the uk overall although it depends how you count them because we've had quite a lot of vagrants come in and we have some that breed sometimes and sometimes they don't so things like the vagrant emperor we don't think has ever bred but it might have last year and we've got lots of recent colonists as well so red vein darters come in every year now even more and more but what they tend to do is lay an egg they go through their life cycle and then they fly south but things like the willow emerald the southern emerald and the southern migrant hawker have all arrived within the last sort of 12 years and they've colonized southeast of the uk entirely 
suitable habitat. The willow emerald is basically everywhere. And the southern emerald in very select habitats. But the southern migrant is slowly spreading, which is quite interesting because the migrant hawker did exactly the same in the 1930s and has now reached Scotland. So be interested to see what happens there. Yeah, I think we had some reports of them this way last year. Mm, yeah, you have had some. Uh, yeah. They've got as far as North Yorkshire. Yeah. So yeah, it's mad, really. We have actually lost a couple of species in the last century or so. We had very briefly in the 50s, we had dainty damselfly, which went extinct in the Great Flood in 56, I believe it was. Um, but they did turn up in Kent again in recent years. But we have lost the orange-spotted emerald. And we've also lost the Norfolk damselfly, which is only found in Norfolk Broads in the first half of the last century. I think it is found in Europe, but we called it Norfolk damselfly because it's only found in Norfolk here. It's it's interesting times because we've had the dainty damselfly come back. Be interested to see if the others do. Though the orange spotted emerald has believed gone extinct because our, our river pollution is so rubbish and it isn't that much better, which I've covered before, but I won't go into now. We're getting lots of new ones and there's lots coming north through Europe right now. And these things that have turned up sort of once every ten years are starting to turn up every year and stuff like that and some things that have never been recorded here have started turning up as well so although global warming is bad it's great for us dragonfly fans because we're getting new species although it is pushing some like the white face data north so yeah mostly good news for us though it's increasing the number we've got in the uk but that way i think you know it's probably a good time to mention that a lot of people really kind of associate may and june with damselfly and dragonfly kind of time mm. of year and yes they do start coming out i mean even as early as april um, obviously depending on conditions and that but we do actually have some that you can still see right the way through to september and october time as yeah. well so it's worth keeping out you know it's it's one of those that you get that really nice spread and it's different species i think we get the common data that comes out mm. actually emerges it's one of our later emerging dragonflies yeah. but then you know i've seen them right into october in good years mm. And the, the Willow Emerald is joining it now. Although I did get, um, I think it was the latest dragonfly, certainly in Essex, uh, which was a southern hawker in the middle of November. And they have, we have had records of, as a migrant hawker in December a few years ago, but also this vagrant emperor, which is a species that is typically sort of North Africa and Southern Europe in our sort of region. And they keep coming over here, but they'll, you know, if the conditions are right, they'll get pushed north because they are a very migrant dragonfly. They're one that sort of breeds in uh, temporary pools in deserts, so they have to really move around to find suitable habitat. Um, and they've popped up in sort of January. They've turned, you know, you see a dragonfly in January, you know it's probably a vagrant emperor because there's not much else around. It's, it's such a, there's a whole massive topic for another podcast, I think, getting into all that. Fantastic to see. And we've seen massive range expansions of previously more restricted species. So the Norfolk hawker in the, I believe it was the 70s and 80s, was restricted to a few places in Norfolk. Due to good habitat management and protection, it spread south into Suffolk. But then about, oh, I don't know how many years ago now, was there some point in the last decade they came over into Kent, but we think they came from Europe. And then they've made it to Cambridgeshire, Hertfordshire. And so you had a ring around Essex and we're just starting to get the odd one crossing the border into Essex now. So Norfolk Hawker, which is, is Schedule 5, protected, that's how rare it was, is is now spreading, which is quite nice to see. And Willow Emerald, which, say, arrived in 2009, I believe, is now last year reached Yorkshire. North Yorkshire, and I think it's west as far as it might even be in Wales now, in, pla in a few places, which is just extraordinary when you think about it. There must be more waves coming over yeah. every year from Europe, I think, to, to encourage that. So just keep your eyes out when you're yeah. out and about. Especially the, the free hot summers we've had. It's bound, yeah. 
bound to be more come this year, I think, or very soon. So I think that that pretty kind of sums up families as as briefly as we can do it. <laughs> all yeah. the different groups we thought we might take you through the life cycle stages as well because it is a really interesting life cycle and just before we touch onto it and i think this is actually probably a nice point to put this in and i know neil's gonna say something afterwards but i'm gonna say it anyway the dragonfly is actually really important for a lot of people it actually the dragonfly itself symbolizes change transformation adaptability and self-realization it's a symbol of happiness and new beginnings so I think that's a nice little lead into talking about their life cycle. It's nice. And it's, it's a nice sentiment, I think. But they're awesome enough on their own without that. I well, they are but, definitely. Completely. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah, yeah. not to criticise that at all. I guess we'll start with the egg. Now, the egg is laid by an adult, obviously. But it varies exactly where they're laid, uh, depending on the species and how it's laid. So you imagine the situation in summer. Some of the ponds have dried out and stuff like that. So a common data... And a lot of the chasers, you may have seen them, a lot of the, the darters will go in tandem. So you'll have the male clasping the female around the back of her head to stop anyone else, you know, another male coming in and mating with her and fertilising her eggs. And some of the damselflies actually have little scoops on the end of their abdomen to scoop out the sperm from rivals. Darters, they'll go along and they'll just dip the tip of the abdomen into the water and lay an egg or two every time they dip into the water. The chasers do similar, but the females on her own and the males sort of guarding her. This is why the males patrol the ponds, but I think Victor going to a bit more. Yeah. And yeah, and he'll just sort of guard her egg laying without being attached to her. There was a record I saw somewhere of a red veined data egg laying into the sea and the person was snorkeling so they could actually see the eggs drop into the water. Now they're never gonna hatch, but they literally just they play they do the sort of spray and pray approach they just lay eggs everywhere i've seen them laying them into puddles and buckets and stuff like that because you never know those larvae might survive they just basically they, they put eggs in as many places as possible some of their nymphs will survive i said larvae then didn't i but i'll come to that in a minute neil i know terrible like, it's gonna keep reading things that say larvae no. with them. hawkers and emperors you may have seen the females only i think the lesser emperor and the southern migrant hawker out of these will do the tandem thing that the data do but most of them just the females egg lay and they will land on a lily pad and they have an ovipositor that's got a cutting blade so by ovipositor um, i should explain is basically the egg laying tube or organ or device whatever you call it and they, they cut into the stem of a plant and egg lay into the stem southern migrants uh, lay into mud I've seen them laying into the mud. And sometimes uh, hawkers, quite often southern hawkers I've seen this, they lay into the deadwood log next to a pond, which I've always got wood near my ponds. Yeah, sometimes they lay it above the surface, which is interesting, but we'll come to that in a bit. Now, southern migrant hawkers and gas emeralds, which are ephemeral pond specialists, will find a ditch that's completely dried out, but they know will fill with water somehow, because they're just, you know, perfectly evolved. They'll lay eggs in the stems or the mud in that unfilled pond, and that'll fill up over winter. And then the eggs hatch in spring. And likewise with these, that's what they're thinking with these logs where they're laying above the water level, the water will come up and then the eggs can hatch into the water then. Now, you may have seen damselfly, sometimes the male will push the female damselfly under the water to egg lay. But I've also watched both beautiful demoiselle and for the first time yesterday, banded demoiselle, the female will land on some vegetation on the surface and she'll crawl under the water to egg lay to put them in the optimum flow so there's enough oxygen for the eggs to develop. Of course, there's serious risk of being eaten by a fish or similar. Um, so it's quite brave. And I think it's life in the undergrowth that actually cover that 
and filmed that. Or it might be the Life series, one of the Attenborough series. It's really quite cool. And Willow Emeralds lay their eggs on vegetation overhanging lakes and rivers and ponds, slow flowing rivers that'd be, uh, which hence the name Willow Emerald because it's quite often willow. Uh, it's usually willow and alder, like it says in the books, uh, and they leave a, a distinctive scar on the bark so you can, it's like, almost like a gall really, so you can record them by finding where their egg laying traces are. But since they've come to the UK, obviously there's lots of people have been observing them and they've been observing egg laying loads of things, hawthorn, even dead nettles. Uh, Mark Keith, who's the now the Kent recorder, after I gave him a nudge, uh, when it the situation became vacant, uh, has I think he recorded them in nettles first in the UK, which is quite a good thing. So when you see stuff like that, it's worth recording it because it might not have been recorded before. Other people might have seen it, but no one's recorded it. So that's a good thing to do. So when it comes to time for the eggs to hatch, as I've previously mentioned, the ephemeral pond specialists wait till spring. Um, a lot of the darters wait till spring as well. So they develop quite quickly. So they're waiting for the pond to fill up for the ephemeral species. But the ones with the, they've grown, say like the hawkers that have laid their eggs on the log, they're hoping the water will go high enough to cover where the egg was laid. But, you know, if you have a dry winter, it's not going to happen. So when the nymph hatches, it has to get to the pond, which they can do. But what's interesting is when they hatch, they don't look like the nymphs do the rest of the stage. They're, they're called prolarvas and they're sort of like worm or tadpole-like and they just have to wiggle. So these things hatch out an egg and have to wiggle into the water sometimes. Thankfully, most of the eggs will be in the water so they can just sort of wiggle free. And after a few minutes, they'll molt and they turn into the nymph. Now, for those who haven't seen a nymph, a nymph is basically an unwinged adult in most insects that have incomplete metamorphosis like dragonflies, which means they don't have a pupa or a chrysalis stage. And the damselflies look, if you think of a body of a damselfly, but stick three feathery towels on the end and get rid of the wings, you're pretty much there, really, in terms of shape. The chaser and darter nymphs look a bit like six-legged spiders in shape roughly some of them are quite hairy as well and the hawkers are similar again but have got a much more stretched out body they're almost approaching torpedo shaped in a way they are fantastically evolved you can imagine after 300 million years they've sort of worked it out and they're all predators and they have these fantastic mouth parts that are on a hinge and can shoot out i often describe it when i describe it to kids it's a bit like a frog's tongue but with teeth on the end and this can go you know in a split second so when the prey swims past it shoots out and grabs them they eat various things so basically anything that moves that they can grab really so various invertebrates including each other tadpoles and the big emperor nymphs which can be as big as a little finger over five centimeters long will take small fish as well which is quite cool any invertebrate taken out of vertebrate is always good though tadpoles don't count because they're pretty useless at defending themselves unless they're toe tadpoles they can they eat through them they don't yeah they mm. don't, the poison doesn't seem to bother them apparently even my beloved toads get munched away now everyone goes on about the jaws which is really cool because that was actually inspiration for the alien the xenomorph in the alien film there's a nerd thing for you there they had to evolve a way to breathe underwater because their ancestors were sort of silverfish like animals which breathed air so they can breathe through their skin and damselfly nymphs can do that fine but their three towels which are called cordial lamellae are flat and thin and quite wide and that gives a lot of surface area for them to breathe through but they can lose well i can lose all of them or some of them and still be able to breathe because they can breathe through the rest of the skin but if the oxygen level drops in the pond then they're going to struggle and a lot of them die if they haven't got the lamellae anymore but dragonfly nymphs are a lot chunkier so they've got a much lower surface area to body volume ratio. So because of the way diffusion works when you breathe through your skin, it's not enough. So they need something to supplement it. And they've evolved gills, but not like any other animal that I've seen. They actually use their lower gut area 
so they have to breathe through their bottom, which always gets a laugh from the kids for some reason. I have no idea why. Um, you're smiling. Even you're I'm laughing. I'm smiling yeah. and laughing. I haven't even got the camera on and she knows I'm smiling and laughing. It's um, because I'm doing exactly the same. Yeah. I, I've said that fact I don't know how many hundreds of times and it still makes me chuckle to myself every time. Yep. One thing I hadn't thought of till a kid point out, it means they must have really bad breath, you know, if they poop out the hole that they breathe through. But there we go. But I think the best thing they can do and it's especially impressive with the larger hawkers, which have a streamlined body, is they can suck in water and then tighten, you know, the nozzle at the end there and squirt the water out and move by jet propulsion. And they can move at some knots as well when they need to, especially these streamlined hawkers. It's really quite impressive. Now, the way they live, many of them sit on the bottom and are ambush predators. They wait for things to swim past. Things like the darters and the emerald damselflies, which nymphs need to grow quickly, are quite active. So they'll crawl around. And that's why the emerald nymphs don't do so well in fish peel ponds, because the fish tend to pick them off quite easily. Now, they stay as a nymphs typically one to two years. It depends on what type and how warm the weather and the climate is where they are. Uh, golden rings in Scotland, for example, can be over five years. I saw the figure of seven years bounded around in another book. Uh, but these temporary pond species like the emerald damselfly, one book said two to three months, but I have definitely read six weeks, but that might be in southern Europe where they're going to develop a lot quicker, a lot warmer. And down in the med, things like the red-veined data can have two generations. So they, yeah, the adults lay eggs and they go through complete metamorphosis to lay eggs again before the end of the summer because obviously it's yeah. warm weather down there obviously so they develop quicker and they've got a longer season to do it in there is some evidence that they have tried that in the uk as well the red rain data so that's quite interesting to see because we have got quite warm autumn these days haven't we we do so, and we do have that warm spring as well don't we i mean you know last few years we've had like really warm periods in march and then a cold snap um although we didn't get that this year so it is definitely you know our warm period is definitely getting longer i mean you know you can still be out in shorts and a t-shirt in it in october and november sometimes yeah and in exceptionally warm springs we have started to get large reds emerging in march you know not unheard of but still quite we had good numbers of them i think it was mid-march one year it was quite mad that was a mad year that was so i'm, I'm going to take them from kind of when they're at the, that stage and they're they're ready to emerge basically so i'm going to do the emergence so what will happen is the nymph will actually crawl out of the water and find some suitable vegetation to hang on to basically and it's actually a lot of this final kind of molt in this final stage is actually triggered by day length and temperature and that's something that we just touched on because as our springs get warmer and we have this warmer weather earlier or like more intense warmth and water bodies warming up the emergencies are happening earlier when we get that so you know it's not that they're they're always going to do it at the same time every year it is determined by day length and and temperature so when they've crawled out and they found themselves a nice little bit of, of vegetation the adult will actually break through the skin it happens quite slowly actually if you've ever seen it it's quite a lengthy process mm -hmm. you, you really do need to sit and get comfy if you're going to watch it and you'll have the thorax and head will exit through a hole just in front of where the wing sheaths are so it kind of splits in half and it, it pops out it is an amazing thing to see it's very weird and alien like but still really cool mm -hmm. uh, so it'll kind of pull itself out and then with dragonflies they tend to hang upside down and they'll do this and they'll have a rest period at that point which allows the legs to harden and you know damselflies will actually kind of protrude forwards at this stage but dragonflies kind of hang upside down and it kind of looks a bit ungainly really but eventually once the legs hardened enough the adult will kind of 
bring itself back up. It'll reach up and it'll grab on to skin case, the exuvia, and it will then kind of free out the abdomen. So kind of pull out the abdomen and allow that to hang down. And at that point, they'll actually redistribute body fluids. And these are used to pump up the abdomen and wings. And as Neil mentioned earlier on, when they first come out, the wings are actually together. In, in drag well in dragonflies and damselflies the wings are together and eventually they will open up in dragonflies and at that point they'll never come back together but when they're fully expanded and hanging out there the adult dragonfly is roughly around twice as long as the skin and it will kind of hang on there then for for quite a long time the final stage you've got this newly emerged adult and it will have really shiny wings and it's if you're looking for them you, you'll notice it is really quite quite different the wings have a very very different appearance and in some case they're actually a little bit opaque but Mm -hmm. still shiny and and it takes around another hour or so for these wings to actually harden enough for the adult to take its maiden flight so this whole process is about seven stages and it's said it's not a quick process it's quicker in damselflies obviously the much smaller much more dainty and it's normally around about an hour ish dragonflies it's around about three hours so that's how long we're, we're talking. And some species will actually do it at night time. And you know, some just pick any time of day. I've seen them coming out at four o'clock in the afternoon. I've also seen them coming out at eight o'clock in the morning. And some will actually do it at night. Some do it en masse as well. So there's a lot of variation depending on the species. Once the adults are emerged, they're actually known as tenorals. And they're actually quite pale to start with compared to what their kind of final adult coloration will look like and sometimes can have quite dark eyes and whitish wing spots it actually then takes them a couple of days to get their full adult coloration and it will take them you know it takes that long for like the bodies and the wings to harden completely and they're actually quite vulnerable at this point because they're not completely hardened they're they're quite vulnerable to predators but once all this has happened they can then take to the wing and start to hunt for food now, generally speaking, um, I've tried to condense this. I mean, obviously, it's going to be different for different species. But tenorals spend around a week or so away from water, feeding and gradually developing their full adult coloration and actually reaching sexual maturity. Once they are mature, they'll move back to the water to breed. And some males are extremely territorial. I know I know Neil touched on this briefly again. And you can, if you sit there and watch them, I know four spot chasers which i've spent a lot of time with over the last um you know five years or so they are incredibly territorial and they will you know basically just fight off anything that comes anywhere near them damselflies generally i think are a lot less territorial and and you generally see those in certainly uh, if you live like near the larger colonies i know i've been out and you walk along and there's clouds of damselflies and they just take off and it's like little fairies in the grass Whereas we generally will only see one or two dragonflies. Now there are obviously exceptions to that, and I will will briefly mention dragonfly roosts. Um, but you know when they come back um, to water, that's when they'll kind of breed, and basically the whole life cycle starts over again. Life expectancy it's pretty short, generally speaking. It's not short. Some invertebrates, but so you know it, it's not that long either. It can be anything from a week or maybe two weeks, occasionally six to eight weeks, depending on the species. Damselflies is obviously a lot shorter than it is dragonflies, and it's weird because there there's some real like different conflicting ages on them. You know, you've got damselflies typically will have about a week as an adult. Some dragonflies around about a month, 
but then that can also be a bit longer. And as Neil said, like the whole natural life cycle from egg to death of an adult can be anything from six months to six years. So yeah, absolutely amazing species when you think about it, that they, they've got such a variety and they can actually adapt depending on conditions as well. The same species might have slightly different life expectancy if they're in different conditions. So if you've got one that's further south compared to, say, one that's up in Scotland, you know, the timings might be actually quite notably different, even though it's the same species. Generally speaking, when we go out and we look for them, we I think you'd agree, Neil, generally you find one or two dragonflies. Mm. You rarely find big groups of dragonflies. But there is, we're not entirely sure why they do it. There's still kind of lots of theories kind of banning around about it. We know that four spot chasers will congregate in huge numbers. I know when I was doing some research a few years ago, I found three sites in the entire of the UK where you would have these massive dragonfly roosts. And I'm not talking six or seven or maybe double figures, figures, not even triple figures. I'm talking potentially thousands of the same species roosting in one area. Now, I'm very lucky in that I actually have, technically there's actually two roosts close to where I live, but only one is, is in that area that's accessible to the public. And it's incredible to see. And again, this is a species that is incredibly territorial, but we don't entirely know why for about 10 days, a week to 10 days, they will gather in these huge numbers. But it's it's absolutely phenomenal to see. We do get swarms of migrant hawkers. Migrant hawkers are an interesting species. Something we'll have, I have to do some more research on. I did read somewhere that they can live for months. We do have some that breed here and you can find the nymphs and stuff. About end of August, September time, the numbers in the UK suddenly explode. And that's because a load of migrated from mainland Europe. I have seen on a number of occasions sort of swarms of 20 or 30 of them plus around an area of food because even when dragonflies are mature, they'll still spend quite a lot of time away from the pond feeding over meadows and hedgerows and some species will travel quite some distance. Some within each, even population ones that don't tend to travel very far, will disperse to um, other ponds and stuff. So you'll find them in meadows and hedgerows and various places where they get insect prey. But the most impressive dragonfly show I've seen was at Rain and Marshes almost quite a few years ago now. And it must I reckon they must have come in from Europe, a lot of them, because it's right on the edge of the Thames, Rain and Marshes. And there was easily 300 dragonflies perching the trees, flying around above us. Almost all of them migrant hawkers, but a few southern hawkers mixed in and stuff like that. So that was quite amazing to see. And yeah, there's so many things we could talk about, but we're, we're starting to run out of time now. I think we've gone over time a little bit. I think we've yeah. we've got a couple of yeah. questions, so if we yeah. maybe if we cover go, those, go straight to those, and then yeah, we'll, so we'll, we'll come back to this topic another time. I'm quite sure. Um, a bit more detail on some of the groups, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely, um, and some of their behaviours as well. I think because mm. um, they're really interesting. But we've got a couple here, so I think we'll start with one from Eyes Open Wild. Uh, this is actually George. Uh, he's actually a really good friend. He actually said, is it true that they have their own special roost place they return to? Now, I don't, I don't think an awful lot is actually known about it. And certainly it's not easy to find if there is about this particular behaviour. So, I mean, I know from personal experience with the four spot chasers that I spent time with around here for about a week to 10 days, they do all come back to the same place to roost mm. every night. I mean, they disperse across 
the whole area during the day. And you'll still see them. You'll still see them in good numbers. But, you know, they do fully disperse. But then for some reason, all come back to, you know, that particular roost. And it'll only last for about a week, maybe 10 days, depending on the weather conditions. I think generally with damselflies, they don't tend to disperse that much anyway. So they they don't, you know, they tend to stay in similar areas. But I don't, I don't know, really, is the answer to that. You know, no, so I'm not sure we know, really. I mean, there's certainly, I don't think they necessarily come back to the exact same spot to roost every night, but they probably maybe come back to the same area. Yeah, I mean, logically thinking, that they'll know where the best place to roost is. Uh, they won't just pick anywhere at random. They'll pick for whatever parameters they use. And if they're in a set territory, they're probably the best, they'll know where the best spot is. And maybe they do have some, you know, the best spot to go. They'll go to it most nights, I should think. But yeah, that's interesting that someone needs to do some research. I don't think... Mm. We know all that much about their roosting habits. I mean, yeah, I have asked, how how do you find dragonflies, you know, individual, where do they go? And no one really seems to know, which is quite interesting. It involves little small radio tags. I think some people have done a few bits of work. So I kind of need to research a bit more, I think, but I've never found anything so far. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be an awful lot about it, to be Mm. honest. Um, But there we go. We've got another behavioural one here. And Mm. again, it's... It's another one that I don't think either of us really know a firm answer to, but we could probably, you know, give some suggestions. This one's from Pete, um, Pirate Pete 330, (laughs) another good friend. And he's seen a lot of large red damselflies hunting common blues this year, a significant increase compared to past years. First of all, has anyone else seen this? I've seen a picture of some put up of it as an emperor taking out a golden ringed dragonfly, which is pretty impressive. And I, I've seen, I've got numerous photographs of four spot chasers eating damselflies of varying mm. that, different that's species. That's quite common, though. Yeah. Dragonflies eating damsels. I mean, the, I'm just speculating here, but it's been quite a dry spring, which might limit some of the more terrestrial species that they might eat. So maybe it's a lack of alternative prey thing, because it's going to be quite, quite a risky thing. So a large red isn't that much bigger than, what species was it? common blue the common blue yeah there's it's not gonna be much size difference if any there so that's gonna be quite hard prey for it to tackle they will just eat whatever they can get it might be a combination of you know i don't know if it, they haven't said if there's any more of either species but it might be that relatively speaking that's a more common prey this year so they're getting eaten more i guess could also be emergence you know if mm. they've actually ended up emerging around about the same time whereas maybe they haven't yeah. in previous years you know everything's a bit screwed up this year i think we've seen yeah. that across the board be it wildflowers invertebrates you know amphibians reptiles whatever it's across the board so whether there's that you know normally in, in previous years they've not both mm. been around in those kind of numbers at the same time and then combined with like neil said a lack of you know other suitable prey for them because yeah. it's just been so dry or it could be perhaps the midges normally prey on has emerged earlier or late or something than they have. And Just the emergence my, times are different. That would be my educated guess. Mm. Stroke hypothesis. We have one last one. This is from Betsy Beans Playground. Who I mean, they, these have all contacted us through through Twitter. So what's the difference between blue-tailed and scarce blue-tailed damselflies? Blue-tailed is basically ubiquitous, by which I mean you find it basically anywhere there's half decent water even going polluted and scarce blue-tailed is really quite 
I don't know, rare, but it's certainly got restricted range. So if you're in a garden or a country park, it's almost certainly going to be a blue tailed. So that's a, a nice, easy place to start. As it comes to differences, the females, one form of the scarce blue tail is bright orange. Absolutely stunning. Have you ever seen that? Um, I'm not, no. That it, well, some people, pictures it's of favorite. it, but obviously not in yeah. person. It's some people's favourite to photograph, actually. So that they, they look, it's kind of hard to explain. The, the, well, they, they have a solid, the female has a solid, like a thick, solid bar across the top half of the forex when you move from the side. Um, on this scarce blue tailed, uh, but on the normal blue tailed or con blue tailed, there's two fin bars basically, generally, um, or one slightly thicker bar. But on the males, it's much easier. The scarce blue tail's smaller, and the blue bar, so the blue, the blue tail or the blue tail damselfly in the scarce blue tail, the second from last segment, it covers the whole thing. Whereas on the commoner blue tail, it's actually one segment further up. And once you get your eye in, it's actually quite obvious. But it's one of those things, you know, you've got to get your eye in a little bit. You can look at like pronotum shape and stuff like that, but it is, that's quite hard to do. And wing spots slightly differently placed. Yeah, on the male, it's easy with the placement of the blue band on the tip of the abdomen, basically. In a scarce blue tail, I've seen them in the new forest. And, you know, even in the new forest, it's only certain streams have. And I know one stream that they're fairly common on. I'm just going to have a quick look, see what it says about their breeding habitat. There you go. Small streams, flushes and ponds associated with heathland. Sometimes ephemeral sites of rainwater pools, settlement lagoons. I've heard that, oh, it even says it here, tolerate both mineral enriched acidic and alkaline water so yeah, they have been found i think it's a site in devon like an old quarry where you've got like metal contaminating the water so they're tolerant of that sort of thing but i'm looking at a distribution map and it's basically south wales southern half of the new forest and dorset and bits of devon and cornwall and strips across ireland whereas the blue tailed you look at the distribution map and it's basically whole of the uk including some of the highlands and stuff they literally are <laughs> everywhere so they're probably probably most likely on a garden pond as well i've found them on some pretty nasty looking blanket weed choked ponds so basically 99.999 percent of the time unless you've gone to a site for scarce blue tails intentionally it's a blue tail yeah <laughs> it will be yeah, the quick way of putting it so yeah, hopefully uh, that that kind of it's probably a good time to recommend a couple of books, isn't it? You've got yeah. two options in the UK. You've got the Dave, Dave Smallsher and Andy Swash Wild Guides, Britain's Dragonflies. There's a European Dragonflies one as well, isn't there? Yeah, I or, think that's just come out, I think. And there's uh, the Richard Lewington Field Guides Dragonflies of Britain or the Britain and Europe one. Oh, it's not just Lewington, is it? It's de Gastra. I can't pronounce it. It's probably pronounced completely different to that. So I do apologise in case you're listening. Basically, I've got both because sometimes pictures are better. And it's Richard Lewington, so they're really nice pictures. You get a Lewington book, basically like only a bit of art, really. And the Wild Guys are one where they Photoshop the pictures together, but they do quite a good job. It doesn't look too tacky, I don't think. No, and uh, it gives you some respects. I think sometimes the ones with the photographs are a little bit easier because that's yeah. they're photographed in their habitats. Yeah. So it kind of gives you that idea of, of where you might see it. And I mean, I don't know about the other one, but I know the Wild Guides one actually has it's got like all the markings and that the difference in markings yeah. it's it's got the exuvias it's got you know everything in there plus yeah, you know, a, potential migrants and stuff fact, they've got they've got a different chart but it's basically a table with all the, you know the eye color the forex markings the abdomen marking that's really used i find that when i need reassurance on my recording verifying that is very handy they've also mm. got so the european one the problem is distribution maps in both the i've got the third edition of British Dragonflies, it's probably out of date already. The distribution map. Let's have a quick look at where it would have been. Yeah, because yeah, mine, mine's the third edition as well, which was 2014. So yeah, there might be a yes, yeah, so the Europe one. And yeah, the 
the Lewington one's going to be well out of date now because it's got. But they 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 do hedge their bets with them on a lot of these. They sort of show you where it's likely to colonise soon. And mm. yeah, the Britain's Dragonfly ones has got loads of possible future colonists, like the small spread wing, and they've got Vagrant Emperor in here as well, and all the dots where it was found. But yes, I think we better. F- start finishing up there because it's an hour and a half recording so far i don't know what it's going to end up when i've edited it i guess we'll do our traditional thank you very much for listening we hope you've enjoyed our dragonfly and damselfly and you know if you didn't have an absolute love and fascination for them before hopefully you do now as always i know neil said thanks for listening but also you know let us know what you're seeing i mean mm-hmm. we're we're in our little kind of bubbles i mean neil's in essex i'm in in Froome in somerset we're not neither of us are moving around very much right now so for all our listeners up and down the country and even in other parts of the world let us know what you're seeing as well and have there been any changes to times of year that you're seeing things as well let us yeah. know we want to know yeah so go out and have a look at some dragons if, if 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 you are safe to go out obviously or keep an eye on your garden even if you've got no pond you may end up with some buzzing around but we'll do the traditional where to find us on social media so facebook uk wildlife podcast to search for it we come up twitter at uk wildlife pod and our new Instagram is UK Wildlife Podcast. All one word. You can find us there. Next show should be a good one. I'll put it in there. I'm going to stick my neck out. And um, we've got Xander Ant Boy coming on, so that should be good. We'll be talking about what he gets up to in the Kangorns. And I dare say we'll talk a little bit about wood ants and the shining guest ant as well. You'll find out a bit more about that on the next show. Yeah. And, you know, just so that if anyone's on Instagram and you like a little bit of kind of general nature, chat and what people see oh, yes. you know it's well worth popping on about about nine o'clock every weekday nick baker's actually doing a live instagram for an hour chatting with different guests and you know just basically chatting wildlife and nature and various different things it's great you know we've both been listening now and we kind of tune in and it's a great way to kind of connect with other people and just just like-minded people having a chat so tune yeah. in 9 a.m generally speaking monday to friday for now anyway yeah really good good way to start your day and i think he's is he what's he on instagram is it bug boy baker nick underscore bug underscore baker i believe from memory yeah i think that is it yeah so check it out right well thanks very much guys and we'll see you on the next episode so take care and stay safe bye Bye for now